0: Perry Perry through the middle, touchdown Michigan, and the Wolverines have won it in overtime. Michigan wins by a score of 27-24, and the team storms the field to mob Chris Perry. WCBN Sports, 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor, WCBN.org
1: on to attempt it for the Wolverines. Holds your breath Ann Arbor as the gets set. Places down, kick is up. It's long enough, it's good, it's good! Michigan wins the game! Michigan shocks Washington and the Wolverines are victorious.
0: Difficult listening, 24 hours a day, it's W.
1: It's a little after 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. Back from New York City. Lots of uh, interesting local things have happened. Just a quick comment about the Stauskas. Glenn Robinson the Third departure to the NBA. I think both of these young men are promising young players, but I think they're making terrible mistakes. They need another year of polishing, and uh, barring a miracle shot, uh, they might have been in the final of the tournament this year. So we'll uh, congratulate the University of Michigan's basketball program. John Beeline continues to be one of the best coaches in uh, college basketball. That's quite clear. I wanted to make a brief comment about the passing of Scott Ashton I heard this news uh, I think the day when I got into New York City and of course his brother Ron had lived in Ann Arbor for many years Scott was in a bunch of those punk bands I hear in Ann Arbor in the 70s that I used to go see when I was going to the University of Michigan so they were always uh, eh, close to my heart in many ways and uh, it's interesting that <laughs> Ron Ashton uh, was uh, the guitar player in the band called Grinder that uh, Darren McCarty yeah, was that's in right. yeah. when he was having booze problems. And I guess Darren McCarty, who I think is one of those true Red Wings that all Red Wings fans love for a variety of reasons, uh, a trooper, a great team player. A guy who stood up for uh, Chris Draper when he got the cheap shot from Claude Lemieux. Great guy, but uh, that summer I could tell Darren McCarty was definitely
0: having drinking problems. (laughs) He's got a new book out, by the way. Yes, that I was going to mention. Partly about his uh, career in the NHL. Um,. Also about his uh, personal problems, his mm-hmm. alcoholism and so forth. Uh, he has some very interesting uh, things and thoughtful things to say about uh, medical marijuana. Yeah. Well, I've actually read a big chunk of that book
1: already. So they were uh, fun. Ron Ashton, of course, would uh, was playing guitar uh, Stooges style. And Scott was in a bunch of uh, very interesting punk bands when Ann Arbor had a very active punk scene here in the late 1970s with bands like destroy all monsters uh dark carnival um well um others you know the the uh called
0: heroes called
1: heroes that that still occasionally play john brannan's bands um variety of those bands so sorry to hear about his passing and uh, of course it was uh wonderful to see a reunion tour with the stooges uh A couple years back. 2003, we'll always remember the original date of that, because that was the day that the entire eastern United States went dark. And we were actually on our way to the show. It was up at uh, Pine Knob, also called DTE Energy Theater, I believe. Yeah, ironically. (laughs) And we could see that there was something wrong, even though on 23, you could tell that they had power. That was the dividing line of... uh, where the problems were it was fascinating because uh we had no power in ann arbor but uh, you could uh drive out to chelsea and get a cold one as they say
0: (laughs) well of course the, the passing of uh scott ashton uh means that uh james osterberg is the last man standing from the stooges and i don't think anyone would have predicted that 20 30 years ago that iggy would be the last guy to survive uh, from that band. And, of course, Michigan has a rich uh, and storied music history. Um, It's right up there with any great American musical city. I think uh, Chicago, New Orleans, New York, Detroit, has, uh, and the Detroit area, meaning, of course, Ann Arbor here, uh, a number of great bands. And the Stooges uh, will endure... Uh, even though they just made a handful of records, those records uh, have shaped a thousand other bands and saved thousands of lives. Uh, they really captured the the angst and the the boredom of living in the uh, post-industrial, Vietnam War scarred U.S. of A. And uh, they will be saluted for that.
1: And it's interesting in the obituary that appears in the New York Times. <clears throat> Uh, the uh, writer Ben Ratliff writes, The Stooges, originally the psychedelic Stooges, began as kind of an amateur avant garde quote, like jazz gone wild, Iggy Pop once said. They played their first gig on Halloween in 1967. Scott Ashton's homemade drum set, as his brother recalled, included a 55-gallon oil drum, Timbales and a snare, though no cymbals. So there you have it. And that obituary, by the way, appeared in the March 20th edition of the New York Times. And it um, mentions that, by the way, that he died in Ann Arbor. So he was actually home. Mentions that uh, he grew up in Washington State and uh, his father died
0: and they moved to Ann Arbor um, shortly thereafter. Well, also probably uh, worth mentioning the passing of uh, one of the late 20th century's great writers, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, whose most famous book, Hundred uh, Years of Solitude, really helped establish uh, South America as a working place for a lot of truly gifted writers. Of course, Borges uh, and a number of others precede, Uh, Garcia Marquez uh, in the chronology of uh, Latin American literature. But uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez was uh, an important figure and uh, a much celebrated figure. He's a national hero in Colombia. And there's been ongoing stories about uh, paying homage to him there. But uh, one of the great literary figures. Yeah, and he's got
1: a robust... (laughs) In terms of uh, Ward's obituary in the New York Times this uh, past week, uh, detailing his very interesting life. Of course, he lived in Mexico City for many years, and actually had houses scattered all over the planet. Didn't know that, but uh, there you have it. Magic, magical realism. Magic realism, yeah. Or magic realism, whatever you want to call it. An interesting... 20th century genre
0: well speaking of magic realism seems like a good segue point to some other news uh, items Uh, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad jaunting about making Easter visits something of a a magical attempt to uh, realistically depict uh, control on the ground Um, he visited a, a specifically Christian town uh, against, uh, this is last week, Assad's forces regained control of Ma'alola, an ancient town uh, that has twice been seized by rebel groups. Um, and although this visit, according to uh, Erica Solomon's writing uh, in the Financial Times, uh, the visit also aims to portray Assad as the protector of Syrian minorities against a rebel movement led by Islamist forces. Uh, part of his supporters include uh, the uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, who, of course, represent the Shia contingent. Um, most of the uh, support Assad has drawn, of course, has been from the panoply of minority groups that uh, make up the Syrian nation-state, another one of those artificially constructed uh, Western European boundary exercises. Um and, of course, most of the uh, rebels are supported by the uh, Sunni Muslim, which are the majority in Syria.
1: Yeah, and, of course, the war in Syria has dropped off in the news a little bit because of all this... Uh, Ukrainian... <laughs> well, Ukraine and all this, you know, the the, the ferry sinking and the, the mysterious uh, air crash, yeah. that, that has really dominated, unfortunately, I think, way too much news over the last month. Uh, it's interesting that the chemical weaponry apparently is is slowly being uh, destroyed. And there's a very interesting article in the most recent edition of the London Review of Books by Seymour Hirsch that has some very, I, you know, unreported uh, intelligence about what's really been going on there in the last six months. Uh, basic thrust of the article, which uh, I'll probably mention in some upcoming shows, is essentially that the Um, chemical weapon incidents that happened last year. Some of them were actually orchestrated by Turkey uh, to, quote, draw America into the conflict, to push Obama over the so-called artificial red line that he had previously announced. Uh, This is a fascinating theory and not completely implausible because Syria has been a proxy war. Of course, the humanitarian disaster with refugees in neighboring countries is the real catastrophe. And uh, both the Syrian government and the rebels are blocking supplies, inhibiting the flow of aid uh, through various United Nations groups, and the tragedy continues. But uh, obviously the Syrian civil war, has some uh, anal- analogies to the Spanish Civil War in which proxy wars are being fought on serious turf uh, under the theory that, uh, well, I guess if John McCain were president, mm-hmm. we'd be occupying Libya and Syria at this point, probably without much success. Fascinating to see, by the way, that recently uh, Hamid Karzai Uh, endorsed uh, the annexation of Crimea by Russia. Russia, of course, has been active in the destruction of these chemical weapons that uh, I don't think there's any question the Syrian government possessed. uh, Whether or not they were used by them or by rebel groups is still kind of unclear. So uh, I'll bring the Seymour Hirsch article in in a couple of weeks. Of course, another troubling uh, ruling by the Supreme Court. Let's give them a brain damage award for putting the interests of 541 very wealthy Americans ahead of the rest of the country under the absurd theory of free speech. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's uh, Citizens United Part 2, in essence.
1: Sort of a strange construct, uh, by the way, regarding bribery. um, The traditional campaign reform laws, of course, go back over a century regarding contributions and even uh, some spending laws. But following the... uh, muckety-muck of Watergate which we may get to here in a second just for uh, some historical reasons there were a series of campaign laws that were passed and at one point James Buckley who was the brother of William F. Buckley officially endowed with the title of conservative senator from New York had um, challenged a spending restriction law. The famous case is called Buckley versus Vallejo. And the Supreme Court ruled at the time, I think appropriately, that uh, there should be restrictions on campaign contributions because they can be construed as bribery, quid pro quo, that kind of thing, versus no restrictions on spending, which uh, they kind of split the hairs on that. And uh, spending limitations, of course, are imposed in most democracies around the world. They even have, effectively, uh, time limits on on
0: campaigns. Indeed.
1: Which is the problem in America. America is a perpetual campaign. And when the Supreme Court rules that 541 wealthy individuals have rights that nobody else possesses, uh, our, our country is, uh, which is already in many ways a plutocracy and an oligarchy of sorts, is uh, headed in the wrong direction. I've been reviewing some of these Watergate uh, books the past couple of weeks because uh, April of 1974 was kind of a crucial showdown between Richard Nixon and the various uh, courts and Congress that were investigating the matter at the time. And Nixon, of course, uh, very publicly uh, came out in, uh, let's see the actual date, he gave a national speech to the nation in late April, in which he, by uh, <clears throat> a public resolution, had uh, April 29th, 1974 in which Nixon turned over his edited copies of the Watergate tapes.
0: Which he edited himself.
1: Fascinating stuff. <laughs> Many things are omitted. Certain conversations he claims are not there. And well, and this is
0: where he claims executive privilege. And
1: executive privilege and the so-called separation of powers. And this is a fascinating book. I, I, I kind of recommend it if you ever find a copy of the... 1974 edition of the White House transcripts to pick it up because it was published obviously in a quick publication format shortly after this speech because the chronology that they have in the back of the book ends on May 2nd. And the introduction by R.W. Apple, who uh, interestingly uh, was around when Iran-Contra was going on, Uh, The names, of course, in the Nixon White House that reappear in the Reagan administration themselves make a fascinating roster of uh, people, places, and things. And, of course, uh, you know, linking the two uh, scandals is somewhat interesting in and of itself. But campaign contributions are at the heart of a lot of the mysteries of Watergate. Just exactly what were the burglars looking for? <laughs> Why was the DNC being tapped? Why did McCord put a piece of tape on the security door that was ironically discovered by kind of a late night work, uh, working security guard? And of course, uh, James McCord and was an, was a, actually he was a wiretapping expert. He was almost the facsimile of the character in the conversation. Mm. A eavesdropper expert, a, a, a wire guy who had a kind of strange personality, but he did work for the CIA, as, as did E. Howard Hunt. The man knows too much. <laughs> and of course, uh, Nixon in this actual address blatantly lies to the American people. He claims that he first met John Dean in, in March of 1973 when uh, it's quite clear that Nixon was fully aware of a rather lengthy meeting that occurred in September of 1972 in which uh, the cover-up was obviously being discussed fairly openly <laughs> and uh, extensively. Uh, but I recommend this book because in the introduction by R.W. Apple in which he gives Nixon the benefit, it's also got a transcript of Nixon's address um, to the uh
0: That April 29th one? That
1: April 29th, one of his uh, nationally uh, televised addresses. uh, He he, uh, tells the nation, John Dean charged in sworn uh, Senate testimony that I was fully aware of the cover-up at the time of our first meeting on September 15th, 1972. These transcripts show clearly that I first learned of it when Mr. Dean himself told me about this in this office on March 21st, some six months later. Well, obviously, there were several other meetings. I think Nixon later uh, amended the, 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 the official date of March 21st. March 21st is the famous uh, cancer on the presidency smoking gun tape, but there were several meetings that preceded that to boot. But uh, Nixon is essentially telling the the country that he didn't have a meeting with John Dean on September fifteenth, nineteen seventy two. He did. Haldeman was there, um, and they were openly discussing containment of the Watergate scandal
0: at that point. And in some instances, uh, not on the particular date, but talking about large quantities of money necessary. Yeah, large quantities and of money. The ready availability of same.
1: And of course, the you know the other facts are that that N- Nixon had learned about John Dean earlier, you know, dating back to actually 1971. Uh, he's he's informed of a a guy in the White House named Dean. I don't know that there were two John Deans, but uh, he actually knows him. He mentions his name, and he's talking about implementing the. Houston plan and about how they're going to deal with the Pentagon Papers problem because uh, it's a fascinating discussion that he has with uh, uh, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Chuck Colson.
0: The ready go boys.
1: Colson, the ultimate sycophant. Um, by the way, this is when Howard Hunt is first discussed. Colson tells uh, Nixon that uh, he's a close friend to James Buckley. (laughs) He's hard as nails. He's a brilliant writer. He's written 42 books. What's his name? His name is Howard Hunt. He lives here in Washington now. He's just got out of the CIA. 50, kind of a tiger. I don't know. You might want to... How old is he? 50. That's right. He can do it. He may still have the energy. Coulson tells him ideologically he's already convinced that this is a big conspiracy. This is the Pentagon Papers now. Well, I'd like to get Houston in and use him, though. I mean, I agree, Houston is difficult. But this and that the and That's
0: wall- national security advisor uh, Houston
1: yeah and he had developed a plan in 1970 that pretty much created a kind of White House CIA FBI secret police that <laughs> Jagger Hoover had problems with
0: um, that was the uh, the Brookings Institute caper that never uh, actually transpired but and then of course picking, uh, entering and explosions
1: they have some chit-chat about Houston Nixon says arrogant little bastard <laughs> It's great stuff. And uh, then they start talking about developing leaks. Uh, Nixon suggests, how about bringing in General Walters? We'll bring him back. I'm not sure he would play this. Well, he would play, but I think he might want to look. (laughs) I don't want some guy who's going to try and second-guess my judgment on this because I know more about... It, than any of them. I have forgotten more than anything they'll ever learn. <laughs> this is a game. It's got to be played in the press. That's why Mitchell can't do this. It's not possible for him. Haldeman says, Yeah, you got to find somebody you really got to trust. Nixon says, Run from the White House without being caught. The declassification is important, though. But the important part about the declassification is to get the information, and then of course he goes into his Nixon, it, the Nixon plan, which is basically selected leaks, various forms of disinformation, and of course uh, he later boasts um, about how successful he. Knows how to play this game, this game of leaking and playing it in the press,
0: while simultaneously out the other side of his mouth uh, talking about uh, those who've, who've leaked the Pentagon Papers as the greatest traitors America has ever known.
1: Yeah, because they've essentially created a a, a what they call a national security justification to bug mm-hmm. various aides in the NSC and um. Also, you know, go going after Ellsberg. But the fascinating thing that's amazing about this whole Nixon National Address on the 29th of April 1974 is that he has an hour-and-a-half meeting with John Dean. Hmm. Wait, I, I, I thought he first met him on March 21st, 1973. But he has an, a meeting with Dean on the 28th of February, 1973, him and Dean alone, he says, when you you talk to Klein, it's because I've raised this thing with him on the his case. He is forgotten, I suppose. Go back and read the first chapter of the six crises. But I don't know. As I said, that was espionage against the nation, not against the party. FBI, Hoover himself, who's a friend of mine. I said, I'm sorry. I've been ordered not to cooperate with you, and they didn't give us one expletive omitted thing. I conducted that investigation with two characterization omitted committee investigators. That's stupid. They were tenacious. We got it done. We worked the thing. We got the evidence. We got the typewriter. We got the pumpkin papers. We got it all ourselves. The FBI didn't cooperate. The Justice Department didn't cooperate. The administration wouldn't answer questions except for cabinet offers. I mean like the Burley came down and some of the others. So here's Nixon actually boasting to Dean (laughs) on the 28th of February. Go back and read The Six Crises. Colson, of course, at one point bragged that he'd read it 8 to 12 times. <laughs> oh, it's it's a real page turner, too. <laughs> and, of course, it includes the checkers speech. Yeah.
0: Stuff. It's a classic. A classic of American literature. Well, and fiction. <laughs> because <laughs> what really begins to emerge with the more scrutiny you give these tapes that Nixon so extensively made of himself and his closest associates is the performative aspect. Yeah. There's a, almost a, a, a discernible transition point where John Dean goes from being somebody who's trying to help as best he can to realizing, hey, I'm going to be left holding the bag on this <laughs> crap storm. Uh, and later uh, conversations between Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and Nixon about <clears throat> Dean, uh, where they're talking, trying to convince themselves as though... Uh, you know, like an adolescent who's trying to convince themselves of a lie that, so they can more you know accurately convey it to their parents. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's what he told me. That's what he told me. I'm, this is from May of 73, but uh, Haldeman's uh, saying here, well, he was our legal man. And when a lawyer comes and tells me what to do, he's the man in charge. Well, for Christ's sake, I do it. How the hell do I know? Nixon, that's right. That's right. You weren't having any other lawyers. This was your counsel. And your damn counsel was misleading you. Yeah, that's right. Dean said to turn over the $350,000, didn't he? Well, yeah, that's what he said. And then later, Nixon says, about a half a page later, um, well, it's got to be worked out. Just knock his goddamn brains out about Dean. And this was a guy who had been close. Oh, yeah. And, of course, Nixon would turn again and again on those who'd supported him most loyally. Well, and it's
1: clear that, as they say, <clears throat> the old joke about a poker game, if you don't know who the who the sucker is, <laughs> it's probably you. <laughs> <laughs> so at some point in the poker game, I just wanted to let you know, you're listening to Gray Matters here on WCBN-FM, and Arbor Yazoo City calling will be coming up shortly. If you don't know who the sucker in the poker game, it's probably you. And I think Dean, some at some point mm-hmm. in that month, in the month of March 73, realized, wait a minute, I'm going to be the fall guy on this. But, of course, by
0: that point, everybody was falling. (laughs) Well, and everybody had uh, dirt on their hands, for sure. And the amazing
1: thing, I, I mean, the remarkable thing is when you go back and you begin to speculate about some of the mysteries regarding the bugging of the DNC, you begin to realize that there was a sort of uh, wink and a nod about who was supposed to do what. But clearly, John Mitchell, who had been a close personal friend of Richard Nixon, had been the attorney general, who incidentally, by the way, opened up the surveillance of John Lennon a couple mm-hmm. of days after John Lennon appeared here in Ann Arbor for the free John Sinclair rally. That's right. That would... We just celebrated the hash bash. Fascinating. Uh, Books on that subject by Jonathan Weiner of the uh, Nation magazine regarding the FOIA information that he got, uh, courtesy of uh, the federal government and how Strom Thurmond, the man with the orange hair that <laughs> swore in Rehnquist for the uh, impeachment of Bill Clinton, now put your hand on a Bible. <laughs> Unbelievable stuff how these names keep recirculating, but Thurmond worked with Hoover And Mitchell to uh, open up FBI files on John Lennon because they wanted to deport him as an alien. They were going to use INS laws. It's uh, incredible stuff. But Lennon, of course, was on Nixon's enemies list. Indeed. Along with Joe Willie Namath, for some reason. (laughs) Paul Newman. Paul Newman. I think Redford might have eventually made it on there.
0: (laughs) Uh, I'm sure he hopes he did. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of a badge of honor to be on Nixon's enemy list.
1: Right. That's, what I think, what Newman famously said. He said, Well, really.